Welcome to Wild Quincy, a podcast that looks into the little-known and forgotten past of Quincy, Illinois. They go by different names, gunman, mafioso, or even godfather, but we just call them mobsters. In this episode, we learn about another Quincy native that could literally take any one of those titles. Learn about the infamous Ted Crowley, coming up next. Now, here's your host, Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. We have made it to the midpoint of season four of Wild Quincy. How does it feel? Does it feel new and fresh to you, Travis? Oh, the view on Midpoint Mountain is delightful. <laughs> the ascent was was just hard charging, and I'm looking forward to a little downhill coast. But right now, we are at the summit, and it is something special. Chris, how you been, man? I'm doing good. I'm, I got my tray tables, and uh, my chairs are in the upright position, so we are good. Oh, yeah. Uh, Always. We are ready to go. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, no, we had a, a great episode, good response on our Earthquakes episode. If you didn't check that one out, do that. Uh, luckily, the prediction or thought of, oh, no, we do an episode on Earthquakes, and there's one that occurred, has not occurred yet, so knock on knock, wood. Knock on wood. We still got to make it through the episode before <laughs> we say that for sure. That's right, uh, but check that out. And then, of course, a, a great Patreon, which you're going to hear about coming up in just a few minutes. Uh, we had some fun in our episode talking about some, some weird stuff, talking about animals and Earthquakes and all that so uh, you can check that out become a patreon we'll tell you details about that in a few minutes but you know we always ask about viewer comments you know we we tell our listeners if you have an idea or have a thought or or want to add something to the conversation to uh to to reach out to us and travis we had somebody just reached out to us kind of recently that you kind of wanted to highlight that's true yeah it was actually an interesting throwback to our fan schmidt murder episode uh, this was from uh, Haley. Haley was writing to us from Vancouver, Washington, actually, from way across wow. across the country. Turns out that, uh, well, a little side note, that's where Ray from the story actually uh, lived and was buried and died mm. um, over in Vancouver. But interesting connection. She says, she writes and she says, I was doing some family research and was surprised to come across your episode on the Fanschmidt murder and was excited that it was so recently produced. She thanks us for covering it and gives us some lovely kudos on the job. It turns out that her great-grandmother named Carrie uh, took over the teaching job that the victim of the murder, Emma Campen, from from that position. When Emma was was murdered at the Panschmidt residence, Payson needed another teacher, and her uh, great-grandmother stepped in to fill that role. So just a small world. Yeah. And uh, and hopefully she, she seemed to really enjoy, uh, doesn't have still kind of digging into family history. I love it that we, we can just be doing this podcast and someone in Washington doing a little digging into ancestry stumbles across us and gets a little bit more piece of the puzzle. So that, that made my day, Chris. Yeah, that episode, I mean, I was trying to think, I, it's been over two years now, or close to two years since we've done that. Well, it might have been a year. It's been about a while a either way. About yeah, but either way, um, you know, it's it's crazy that uh, as you, we've talked about this before, as time goes by, more people listen and more people end up uh, becoming, you know, fans of the sh- of the episodes and the podcast. And and so then you get start hearing about these background stories. And, you know, I had a, a couple students recently just tell me, oh, man, I d- started digging in. And, um, you know, I never knew about the 1899 
behind you know St. Francis Fire and stuff like that. And you know, so it, it's crazy that you know we as we add more and more fans, um, we get more and more information, and, and that's great. So and we always throw that out. Anybody that's new, maybe they're starting from the beginning, working their way backwards. Man, that would just mess me up. But whatever. Um, <laughs> starting on the end and going to the beginning. Uh, but uh, if you're doing that, you know, uh, if you have something we come across as you're you're listening and you have something to add, let us know. Uh, we have a number available. We have an email. We have all that, right, Travis? We sure do. You can give us a ring or a text at 612-666-9453. Wildquincy at gmail.com will also get to us. And I tell you what, Chris, there's a lot of people out there who really enjoy the show, and maybe they can't make make the jump on the Patreon side. Maybe the funds are a little limited. One of the best things you can do to help show your support for this program we do is to shoot us an email. Follow us online. And check out Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just It's great to hear people who have something to say, or even more importantly, tell a friend. Tell a couple friends, and and that would be just as valuable to us as your support on the Patreon side. So thank you in advance for reaching out and helping get the word out on Wild Quincy. For sure. We have a action-packed and a very full episode coming up in just a few minutes, so we got to uh, light the tires and kick the fires. Something like that. Kick the, kick the tires, <laughs> light the fires. You know what? Let's just burn everything. Burn it down. Burn, burn it all, and we'll just kick it, kick it, and burn it. That's let's right. Eat. You kick, I'll come through with a blowtorch. We'll make it happen. Well, Chris. well, let's kick and burn the question of the day. Are you ready for this, Travis? I I have to redeem myself. It's been a rough couple weeks. Oh man. Well, hopefully you didn't see that expression I just made because this one's. Oh, I saw be, it. I saw it. <laughs> this one's gonna be a little tough. Uh, okay, we're gonna do this game again. Of what's out of place. Okay. Oh, so, uh, there's different events. You need to name the event that did not happen in the 1890s. Oh, sh- okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. You got four choices. We got uh, Booker T. Washington visiting Quincy. The third largest flood ever to occur in Quincy's history. The old Madison School on Main Street was built. Or Quincy College's first baseball game. Those are your four options. So which one of those did not happen Man. in the 1890s? I'll I'll ramble for a while later and try to convince myself how smart I am, and hopefully I won't get it wrong. So stay tuned and let's see how I do. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll have the answer for that coming up at the end of this episode. But as we mentioned, action-packed one coming up. We are diving into the crime aspect of this podcast, and we are talking about the notorious Ted Crowley. That coming up next here on Wild Quincy. <laughs> Here's what you missed on the latest After Hours episode of Wild Quincy. You know those times in your life when you're like scratching by and you're like oh, yes, trying to yes. get to that? That I was at that one of the points in my life where I got that Vienna sausage as a gift for somebody. And it was like literally the only thing okay, left in the kitchen. Who in the world buys you Vienna sausages <laughs> as a gift? It was a package a of a gift. bunch of stuff. Yeah. That was not a friend, Chris. <laughs> that was an enemy. That was not a friend that you need in your life. That was punishment for some transgression you don't recall. Our After Hours episodes are available exclusively for Patreon members by going to patreon.com slash wildquincy. For just a couple dollars a month, not only will you double the amount of Wild Quincy episodes at your fingertips, but you'll also be supporting our efforts as we continue to dive into the wild and crazy history of our favorite town. Also, as a Patreon member, you can take part in our live events and Patreon-only outings, as well as having access to our regular episodes two days before they are released to the public. 
It's easy. Just head to patreon.com slash wildquincy. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash wildquincy and become a wild thing today. Time to learn about one of the most mysterious, well, maybe not mysterious, but uh, we'll just say it mobster of quincy uh and that'd be ted crowley is that is that putting it putting it uh putting it the right way there travis is that, that the kind of the right thing to say you Mob, can definitely mobster. you can definitely you can definitely say it we can say it now and i want to get your opinion okay. now and later okay. because my opinion is a little on the fence over how much we can call ted a mobster or a criminal or exactly where he fits into the fold ted crowley about as infamous as a figure as they come in Quincy's past. You know, there's, there's stories floating around, some in print, some on, a lot on social media on the right pages. They accuse him of being a killer, a pimp, a mobster, a local godfather. You know, it's, it's hard to know what believe when, fact, when facts and fiction intermingle so much into stories. You know, there's so many personal stories where he, that carry a lot of weight and help him construct the fiber or the fabric of this guy. And whenever possible here at, on Wild Quincy, I always try and start with the facts. And I decided, let, let me sit down, let me go through the historical record via the newspapers, and let's start there and see what I can find as a litmus test. So that's what I did. I sat down. We're going we're gonna to talk about the rumors probably on the Patreon episode because there's plenty of facts to go through. And that's where we're going to go, Chris. So right. let's start let's start at the beginning. All right. So Ted, Real's name was William Eldrith Crowley. But everybody knew him as Ted. He was born on January 15th, 1907 over in Trenton, Missouri. So, you know, not too far over in Missouri. It's kind of central north central Missouri. Ted was only 2 years old when his father William was killed as a result of injuries sustained from his job as a brakeman on the Missouri Pacific Railroad. Now, little is documented on how Ted and his brother uh, Kenneth along with their mother Pearl, carried on after this tragedy. Uh, through some series of events, they found their way over here to Quincy. So Ted makes a splash in the newspapers on August 31st, 1931. He's 24 years old now, and he was buying a new hat when a clerk noticed that the $20 bill he had was a fake. This was in Peoria. He was on the road over to Peoria. You know, you know why he was over on Peoria, Chris? No. Well... Peoria had a lot of gangster activity, but, you know, this was a little bit, I believe, uh, when was Prohibition? I can't remember exactly when it started. Mm, late, late 20s, uh, early 30s. Yeah, so I think I think Prohibition had just started. I have it in my, my timeline here, which is, is girthy. Yeah, 1920 is when, uh, January 17th is when Pro, Prohibition began. So 24, Ted was over in Peoria, and, and he was buying a hat. The reason he was over in Peoria, it's hard to say, but Peoria used to be known as the whiskey distillery capital of the world. Were you aware of this? No, not at all. Peoria, Illinois made some whiskey, Chris. And in Prohibition, they were very hard-nosed, even the local government, against Prohibition. A lot of stills never actually closed. And they found sneaky little ways, and a lot of the booze that flowed throughout Illinois and throughout the world in, in the country was coming out of Peoria. So that's why it was such a prominent spot. This has probably had something to do with why Crowley was in that neck of the woods. So here he is buying a new hat, and the $20 bill he paid for it with was a fake. 
The clerk was suspicious and called the police and kept an eye on Crowley as he made it out to his car. The police ended up catching up with him, and they found more than $115 of counterfeit money in his possession. So I'm not sure if he was in the business of counterfeiting personally or if he was maybe just a benefactor of someone else's hard work. Mm -hmm. But it seemed clear that Ted had become involved with a life of crime. He seemingly got off pretty easy from having the fake money. Less than a month later, he was charged uh, with assaulting a taxi driver. He didn't apparently have any large fines or did any kind of time for this having this counterfeit money. I couldn't find anywhere any kind of penalty. But like I said, less than a month later, he's charged with assaulting a taxi driver here in Quincy. And he was fined a whopping $5 for this crime. <laughs> and it, it wasn't clear what prompted the assault. Charges were not pressed, and this is another theme you'll notice. Nobody wanted to press charges against Ted Crowley. Hmm. So it's July 1932. Crowley, along with three others, are charged in connection with the burglary of guns from a local place here called Gunther Hardware. Crowley was able to make bail on like a $1,500 bond. He was accused by one of the other robbers, and though it went to court... The grand jury did not indict Crowley of the crimes, and he walked. Less than a year later, in February of 1933, Crowley and three others, including our buddy, or not our buddy Leo Moncton, but his little brother Jimmy, James Moncton, he might have been his older brother, I'll be honest, I don't remember how the order went, but he was with his brother Moncton, so Ted was running with the Moncton boys, who definitely had a stronghold on Quincy, and they were down in Seymour, Texas, and they were held for questioning. You see, people saw them stopping their car near a field, and they deposited a package in the field. Mm. This package, it would seem, contained two guns. Equally as interesting is that the car being driven had plates that corresponded to a different car altogether. A little suspicious. Mm -hmm. Though these circumstances were eyebrow-raising, to say the least, after none of the men were found as being guilty in Quincy after the cops you know, called the home of these guys, they were released from the police custody in Texas. So they're down in Texas. They drop guns in a box. And there's nothing. they're not wanted in Quincy for anything, so the cops let them walk, which seems insane that they just let them walk, right? <laughs> right. So only days later, two more Quincians were arrested near the Mexican border in Del Rio, Texas, which is only 200 miles from where Crowley and the other guys were arrested days earlier. Those that were arrested uh, were wanted in Quincy for skipping town on, on a bail. Police suspected that the arrest of all parties was connected most likely in an attempt to get those stolen guns from the hardware place to Mexico. So they're running guns to Mexico, Chris, it seems like. Wow, in the 30s? Oh, yeah, yeah, 1930s. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so despite these connections, Crowley was never charged of any wrongdoing, which is good because his availability would be needed again by police in October here when he was questioned by police yet again for his possible role in a slot machine hijacking. He was released without any further uh, charge on this. Ted, you'll find here, may not have been the person who did something, but he was always in the room when it happened. So um, take that for what you will. With... Uh, just a side note here, uh, you know, we had a Leo Moncton episode a while back. That's right. Is this in the same time frame as Leo? So because Leo was running these slot machines, did this have something to do with Leo? Absolutely. Um, if you remember, Moncton, Moncton's whole game was the slot machine right. racket. 
but he had a lot of guys running. I mean, the thing Leo had that, that Ted didn't really have was Leo had a family. He had two brothers, Charlie mm. and Jimmy. And I, I assume one was the muscle, and I assume one was maybe another muscle. I don't know. But Leo was kind of the mastermind. So the fact that and that uh, he's running with Jimmy Moncton here definitely makes me think that when, when Crowley came to the area, I'm guessing he fell into the seedier life as maybe collecting for Leo on local slots or something. Because a big part of Leo's job wasn't just... Uh, the, the slot business, but also, you know, making sure you had girls available in uh, in you oh, know, the, right. Moncton, the Moncton mansion over here. And the second floor was well known to be stocked with prostitutes for, for those coming in for a good time in Quincy. So hmm. there was a lot of connections. And Ted would kind of make his bread and butter Quincy, uh, as far as Quincy's concerned, in the prostitution business. Okay. So so we're seeing early, early connections between Leo and, and Ted already. Absolutely. No question about it. Ted was much younger than Leo. You know, um, I would say Leo, I don't have it in front of me. I would guess he's probably 40s when when Ted's late 20s, early 30s. So he's he's probably got 10 years or more on Ted, Leo. So he was he was uh, arrested in connection with a slot machine hijacking. And again, a lot of the times what would happen is in the slot business, as we talked about in Moncton, is people were always competing to get their machines in places. So it wasn't uncommon for maybe, you know, Moncton or somebody else to steal the other guy's slot machines and just kind of take, you know, kind of take a, a hammer to their business, so to speak, and kind of, you know, create some some strife in their day-to-day. Hmm. So that's probably what happened there. Again, Crowley was not charged. He was released without any any other penalty. So Crowley kept out of the headlines for a couple of years until 1936. And that's, uh, that's when Jack Walmsy had an encounter with Ted late in the night. Ted was wielding a knife and got the best of Walmsy, sending him to the hospital with minor cuts to the head. After getting stitched up, Walmsy ended up at the police station. Though Walmsy clearly admitted that Crowley indeed was the man who had assaulted him, he emphatically, <laughs> says emphatically in the newspaper, refused to testify against Crowley. And did not press any charges. He was scared to death of Ted Crowley, <laughs> this guy. So reading between the lines, Crowley seemed to definitely be an intimidating person here in town. His presence was well known. His reputation was also becoming quite illustrious as well. On March 10th, 1937, Ted Crowley and his future wife, Velma, were both charged with blackmailing a Salisbury, Missouri druggist. The druggist spent an evening in a Columbia motel a Columbia, Missouri motel, that is, with Velma. So so Velma is going to go on to be Ted's wife. But what happened is Ted and Velma went to Columbia, Ted probably the pimp, setting up the arrangement with Velma the prostitute, with this, this druggist, and they spent the night in Columbia Motel. Well, Ted was in a location where he photographed the encounter oh, no. and threatened to release the compromising pictures Unless the druggist paid $5,000. So basically it was an extortion attempt. Wow. Blackmail. Both Crowley and Velma would serve six months for this time. So first jail time we see was for uh, for extortion and blackmail. Less than a year after completing the sentence, Ted and Velma apparently celebrated and decided to tie the knot and became married in 1938. Uh, Perhaps a couple had an extended honeymoon through the remainder of 1938. It was pretty quiet in the headlines. However, in 1939, multiple safes were cracked in robberies throughout Missouri and Quincy. 
Now, both Ted and Velma were arrested and held for questioning here in Quincy. It seems that Ted had borrowed a car from a guy in Keokuk, and the guy was also being held in Keokuk, also related to the robberies. This borrowed car was used and returned to where it was later meticulously searched by the police. They, they found fragments of brass in the glove box as well as the running board, and these fragments were found to perfectly fit into the broken components of a safe that had been stolen in Paris, Missouri. The safe had been cracked and discarded on the side of a road. The pieces all fit together like a puzzle here. Not only was this safe cracked, but it also matched a lot of the methods on a lot of other robberies that were happening here in this area. Well, it turns out that Ted was able to provide what appeared to be an airtight alibi on, on where he was that night, where a Quincy police officer even verified that he saw Ted at a dance the night the crime was committed. So what we have here is an interesting point, Chris. Um, he's, got a, he's got a police officer that's validating him, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the police had a tendency to not be maybe on a complete straight and narrow in this time right. period. So I'm not convinced this this person in in law enforcement was necessarily telling the truth at this point (laughs) because the fact that you know the car you borrowed has pieces of a safe that match the exact safe that are was cracked pretty damning evidence again not a lot of forensics at this time not a lot they could do uh the guy in keokuk whose car it was um being questioned he changed his story altogether when he when he found out that Crowley was denying it and said and said that his accusing Crowley of even borrowing the car was as he put it just sort of a little joke so, <laughs> so Crowley claimed to not even know the Kia Cuck man however the Kia Cuck man has you know had pointed Crowley out of a series of photos so he clearly knew who Ted Crowley was <laughs> Ted must have either had a little memory issue didn't remember this guy at all. The guy, the guy who had told you know this guy in Keokuk being questioned about it. At first, he says Crowley borrowed the car. Now he's saying it was just sort of a little joke. That's a heck of a little joke. Yeah. Uh, I think he was ter- changing his story because he knew that his head was on the chopping block if uh, if Ted had further trouble with the law. So mm-hmm. Crowley and his wife were released of suspicion at the crime. They walked, no fine, no nothing. So we've made it to May 6, nineteen forty. Ted Crowley was one of two from Quincy who were arrested, accused of working with an employee of the Secretary of State's automobile department to form an auto theft ring. The Quincy pair paid the state employee, a clerk in the automobile—excuse me, a clerk in the automobile title division. They were paying him fifteen dollars for each automobile title and license that was obtained and turned over to the pair in Quincy, including Ted. The state employee then destroyed certain records to cover the activity. Only four cars were, were actually stolen, however, before a series of like a multi-check system that the perpetrators weren't really keyed in on. Uh, they, picked up, they picked up the destroyed files and they saw the illegal activity happening. So the FBI conducted an investigation. Uh, at least three of the four stolen cars were recovered. Crowley and his partner were found guilty of larceny and were both sentenced to serve from one to ten years in Menard Prison, which is uh, located and still is down in southern Illinois, in uh, Menard, Illinois. So this is a serious ring they had going on here, Chris. It was mm-hmm. it was all the way into the government in Springfield. They had a man on the inside hmm. who was fortifi- you know, forging documents. Basically, they were turning these titles of these cars 
over to Crowley and another individual from Quincy who we'll probably talk about in the future. I won't name names right now. Um, but what, what do you make of this? This is pretty deep to be. Yeah. Now, this isn't just grabbing a car off the street. This isn't a crime of opportunity. This is some serious paperwork. <laughs> and you said he got one to ten years. Is that what you said? Well, that's what he was sentenced, Chris. Okay. But it didn't quite happen to work that way, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, sorry, there's a little caveat here before we get to the reason why. Okay. Though Ted was serving his prison sentence in 1943, conjugal visits must have been a thing, as mm. a son, Carl, was born to Maxine Naomi McMullen, who Crowley would later marry. So, okay, I see some raised eyebrows, and I had raised eyebrows too. At this point, the math gets a little fuzzy here. It seems that Crowley is still married to his first wife, Velma. Right. A year later, even in the newspaper, there's a mention of him home visiting. And I'll tell you why he's home visiting here. More on that in a minute. But it doesn't appear It doesn't appear that, that he marries this son, the, the, the mother of his son, for another, I think, like six years later. So it seems... That maybe the conjugal visits for Crowley in prison weren't limited to just his wife. Just his wife. <laughs> oh, yeah, and and here you know maybe there were some dates that were wrong. Uh, I don't know though. I think I think there's something weird that you yeah. Know? It would seem it would seem like Ted was staying pretty busy in the pen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> who knows? A little mystery is fun in these kind of situations. I guess makes makes for a fun story. So. As Crowley spent his time in the confines of the prison, World War II was raging. There were a lot of men in prisons in the United States whose crimes weren't really of like a violent, severe nature. This was definitely something that fit Ted in this scenario. The military thought it was a bit of a shame that these men couldn't be put to good use in the service of their country. So in 1943, 692 prisoners in Illinois would be granted early parole if they would agree to enlist in the army and serve in their community. So after serving three years of a potential 10-year sentence, uh, Crowley was one of the prisoners that was traded in a prison uniform for an army uniform. Hmm. A year later, in 1944, the local newspaper here in town, one of them, mentions Ted is in town on leave uh, visiting his family, which includes his first wife, Thelma. So, <laughs> so, so I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird. Uh, at that time, it mentioned that he was a private in the Army, and he was stationed at the Quartermaster's Corps in Camp Lee, Virginia. So he's in Virginia. It doesn't look like he saw any time overseas. It looked like he was kept mainly here in, the, in North America in the United States. Because a year later, in 1945, he's still a private. Now he's on at a recruiting station in Sacramento, California. So 1945, uh, that's only seven months before the World War II would come to an end. So I don't think he ever actually made it out of the States to serve overseas. So in 1945, he's back here in civilian life in Quincy, Illinois. So you might think, okay, at this point, Ted's 38 years old. He's back in Quincy, served his time, spent time with the, you know, for his country. He's a father now. Perhaps it was time to get a fresh start, get a new lease on life, change his ways, you know, second chances, right? Sure. Gets a job managing the Maples Tavern at 24th and Maple Street. Fortunately, here's the thing about habits. They tend to die hard. <laughs> Sometimes an old dog has a hard time learning some new tricks. Maybe the straight and narrow, the straight and narrow path wasn't uh, wasn't exciting for Ted. Maybe he couldn't make ends meet. Uh, you know, things got interesting, 
in February of, uh, let's see, that would have been 1945. In February 1945, Ted was, he was employed at Maple's Tavern. And at that time, the bar was robbed at gunpoint just before 7 p.m. on February 8th, 1947. So Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, so yeah. the Maple's Tavern got robbed at, at knife point? Is gunpoint. that what you just said? Gunpoint. While Ted was there? Here's here's what happened. You you be the oh, judge. Okay. You be the judge. That's right. Ted wasn't on duty. He is employed there, but it was an off day for Ted. Okay. Another guy was doing the bartending on that night. Uh, Ted enters the tavern. This is right about a little bit before 7 p.m. The two men sat down, both drank a Coke, were only there for a short time, and left. They were the only two people in the bar. Came in, ordered a Coke. It's, you know... You go to a bar at 7 p.m. and you drink a Coke, right? Eyebrows go up for me automatically. Yeah. This is a bourbon drinking man, Chris. The bartender steps down to the basement after the two men walk out to tend to the furnace. You know, it's it's a winter time. It's pretty cold. While he's in the basement, he hears two people walk in. So he goes to the first floor. There's two guys, both wearing masks and overcoats. The taller of the two is yielding a gun. The men proceed to take money and valuables, totaling over $150 before fleeing. The thieves didn't appear to be identified as Crowley, and Crowley was never officially accused. One would be remiss, however, to find it interesting in the proximity of Crowley and another man showing up to a bar on a Saturday evening, having a Coke and leaving. Moments before the two thieves, wearing masks and overcoats, enter into the place. I'm not saying it was Crowley, but I'm just saying (laughs) it's it's interesting. It's like that guy. I'm not sailing this alien's. But it's aliens. But it's aliens. <laughs> See, I'm not saying it was Crowley, but it was it probably was Crowley. Crowley. So that's a bold move, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that, plus that, the guy's not the guy's not going to say, "Oh, it was Crowley," even if he thought it was Crowley, because we already seen that nobody's going to pin Crowley to anything unless they want to get their knees shot out. My question, to be honest, Chris, is were they even wearing a mask? Yeah, right. Did he, did he even did he even come in and drink a coke, or exactly. would he just come in and be like, "Give me the money." I'll give you twenty bucks here. What are you going to do? Yeah. Charge me? Yeah, come just on. Say, I'm just Ted, say we were. I'm Ted Mofo and Crowley. Yeah. What if? What if it was just not even that? What if they didn't even come in? What if they just set up some sort of scheme between the three of them and says, "Hey, we can make oh, some absolutely. quick money off of this, and absolutely. you know, we'll give you a little bit. You give us those, and you know, we'll say that you somebody at gunpoint came in here. It's just an easy. It's out. A, it's an interesting story. Yeah, uh, it bleeds very. I'm uh-huh. suspicious to me, right? So, uh, you know, this this same tavern would later have some issues with uh, underage kids coming in and drinking. And one of the one of the I think either one or two of the kids ended up dying in a a car accident after a night where they were there. Ted was bartending at the time. He was Mm. never accused. The owner of the bar was and that Maple's Tavern ended up losing their liquor's license. Mm. And Ted would move on to another Mm. place we'll get to in a minute here. So. Catching up on the timeline, it's now it's January 5th, 1948. Damon Hurdle, it's around today, and it was around then. You throw your finger up, I think you know this I, story. I had a note because I'm like, boy, I remember a story about this. Well, this is it right here, boys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this is uh, this is 1948. The Damon Hurdle jewelry store was robbed. At around 6.30 p.m., five men entered the home of Mr. Richard Hurdle. That's one of the store owners and held captive his wife and daughter at the home as they forced Mr. Hurdle to come with them under duress of threats to go to the store and open the safe. Jewels and cash, around $22,000, were stolen. 
While a good portion was recovered later, just uh, a little over $8,000 in loot was never recovered. One of the men suspected as being part of the uh, one of the assailants was Ted Crowley. The assailants were obscuring their identity, and Mrs. Hurdle claimed that the man whose role it was to hold her captive in her home shared a resemblance in some capacity to Crowley, whom she was familiar with. Crowley was arrested, then released after questioning, only to be arrested again three days later after new evidence came to light. Over the next five months, Crowley would go to trial. Prosecutors would work closely with local police and sheriff's departments to uncover more incriminating evidence against Crowley. However, the prosecutor stated that not only did no such additional evidence come to the surface, but people who had originally claimed to provide damning testimony against Crowley, hmm. they started changing their mind, Chris. They, the police had every belief that if they were to put him on the stand, they would not indict you know, or testimony against Crowley. So the prosecution was clearly frustrated. They realized there would not be any getting evidence they needed to convict Crowley. They realized they couldn't get a conviction in this situation. They essentially gave up, saying the case should be pressed no further. So Crowley was let off the hook without the case even going wow. to a jury. Yeah, which is crazy well, and, and to it goes me. back. I was just I make a couple notes here. You know, uh, uh, real quick. Well, I'll start with this one. So it makes you wonder: Is it hush money? Are they paying them off, or are they saying you shut your mouth? Otherwise, you know, you might be swimming with the fishes, kind of thing. I think is it. Yeah. It could have been both. Uh, it, all all while this is going on. Um, you know, Crowley does most of his exciting work out of town. In town, his main job, uh, when he's not helping rob jewelry stores, this is kind of the exception to the rule, um, is he's he's a pimp. He's he's his game is prostitution, lining up girls, moving girls in town. So, I mean, he's got a pretty good. He may have that philosophy, right and I'm not going to say the word, but he's something about don't blank where you eat. Um, That's exactly yeah. what his philosophy yeah. seemed to be, Chris. And that's what a lot of people even today will say. Uh, Ted was a popular guy. Hmm. People loved Ted. Uncle Ted. He was part, He was always dressed to the nines. Women loved him. He was friendly. He was outgoing. He was a, just a tall, dark, and handsome guy, always dressed to the nines. So, yeah, he, he was very careful to do most of his work out of town. So he... <laughs> Apparently he well, helps. I'm sorry. Let me, let me say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, but uh, yeah, yeah. the other part about that, I remember reading about that story with Damon Hurdle Jewelers. Didn't one of those guys get mm-hmm. like to the point where he took his mask off in front of the 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 wife and the daughter? Like they got to the point where like they were. If I remember that story right, so I was like, it was there was a lot of evidence just to show that they knew who they were, and he still couldn't get the people to get in there. Well, a detail of the story was what they were using was huh. doilies. And doilies are not super <laughs> no. great coverage, you know, right? Yeah. I mean, what a weird choice. I mean, that seems like a straight, like, I don't even wonder yeah. if he was even yeah. masked at all. Um, so it seemed like it should have been a yeah. pretty open and shut <laughs> so, case, but yet, no, did anybody ever get convicted of doing that? Okay. Yes, three three of the men did get convicted. Uh, I don't know what their sentences looked like. Huh. Ted was not one of them, though. But how how, you can tell that Ted is no rookie. His involvement, I, I bet, you know, and this is me putting on the speculation hat, I'll be completely honest, but he's well-established in Quincy. He's well-respected. If he was going to be part of this job, 
he he was either part of the mastermind or he put himself in the position not to be the guys the fall guy. taking him down to the, the he was at the house with the wife and daughter you know this was a low level situation you know he wasn't going to be the one that got caught if, if the police show up at the jewelry store right so this is a this is a pro move in my opinion not putting himself at the most uh, vulnerable spot of the the operation so you know T- ted seems to know what he's doing if it, if indeed it was ted let's be honest he wasn't a, he was not convicted of the crime this will be a trend uh so so 12 years go by it's a little quiet and uh, he makes another splash in the headlines well, I mean, he assaulted a guy and was fined $100 in 1955, but that's, I mean, that's, re- that's really akin to like you and I getting a ticket for jaywalking <laughs> at this point. So, I mean, I, I, mean, I you know, don't even want to include it, to be honest. So, Ted's mom is still in the picture. She's in Quincy, and her name is Pearl. She, I believe she has since remarried. And she bought the Gem Hotel in 1953. And one way or another, Ted had a heavy hand in the daily activities of that property. And you might be asking yourself, the Gem Hotel, what is that? What is yeah. that? Well, the Gem Hotel was uh, was operated, it was actually on uh, 221 North 5th Street. It, if, you're going, if you're going north on 5th Street, you'll pass WGEM on the right, mm-hmm. where it has a Studio H. And on the left, there's the, the block with, with uh, the oh, theater. Oh, yeah. There's an yeah. alleyway, there's a vacant lot, and then a bar on your left. Yeah. That vacant lot was the Gem Hotel. Um, it was, it's been in Quincy a while. And at that point, this, this place had been seedy. A lot of the underworld of Quincy, things, things happened here. Including, this is where Crowley kind of set up shop. At the first floor was the Gem Tavern. Uh, it was located on the first floor. And it had a reputation for housing illicit activities. Having having two stories above, it was used a lot for prostitution activities. I assume most of the uh, the assaults taking place in this area by Ted were probably activities done of him trying to collect on maybe you know prostitution related activities. Uh, just speculation, but it seems like beating up people, them not wanting to to pay of you know press charges. It seems like he's collecting right. Seems mm-hmm. like he's catch, catch, catching some money back here. He really appeared to be just the Webster's definition of a pimp, you know? Uh, that's That was his bread and butter here in Quincy, it seems like. So the Gem Hotel, like I said, boy, there's so many stories if you look up the Gem Hotel. It, hmm. it just more and more people got got mugged there. They got killed there. The, you know, I don't know. That's a pretty notorious spot in general. Absolutely. Like if I'm it is. thinking this is the right spot. I mean, because even, even, you know, in later times, there's discussions about, I believe that bar that's right there on fifth street. And there's, you know, there's activity that's, yeah. you know, that was happening yeah. there as well. So, I mean, yeah, it's pretty crazy. That little section there. Right. So we're, we're coming up on a bit of a, a bit of a milestone. If you look at the under the underworld of Quincy, um, it's been pretty well established in our, our Leo Moncton episode that when Moncton died, and that was he died in February 8th, 1959, a lot of people kind of uh, under the radar believe that the baton of leadership, if there was indeed one, could have possibly be handed over to Ted at that point. Uh, I, be- I believe that there was some activity where when Moncton went over on a military service later in his life, I believe I read or heard somewhere, and again, it's all just speculation, I heard that he kind of left the day-to-day activities under the watchful eye of Ted at that point. So I feel like Moncton really, really trusted Ted. 
So if you believe what you hear in the underworld and the rumblings on, on the word on the street, Ted kind of steps into the role of the local godfather in right before 1960. So I got to imagine he was pretty busy, <laughs> kind of doing yeah. whatever he did day to day. So, but on on 1960 in March on March 26th, Ted was actually traveling south and found himself in Cairo, Illinois, at a place called the Latin Quarter Nightclub. It seems that Ted's interest in the area may have been in looking to open another brothel with his second wife now, Maxine. Ted was with a man named George Garner. Garner was upset that one of the dancing girls at the establishment that he had been particularly fond of uh, by way of a recent visit had been fired. So he got into an argument with uh, one of the larger fellows who kind of managed the place. The two men argue and things evolved into some pushing and shoving. Garner was kind of a smaller guy and he often collected uh, from slots in the area. So he carried a gun. He was he was not a squeaky clean guy. I think he was wanted in North Carolina or somewhere for a murder charge. He was on the lam. So uh, he knew how to operate a gun. And he was a little guy. This guy was much bigger. So Crowley was just there. I think I think he was legitimately just there trying to line up some prostitution business in the area with his hmm. wife. Uh, he apparently had no interest in seeing this little imbruglio developing anything more. And he reportedly went to the coat closet to get the coats and said, get out of there. So Garner is waiting by the bar for Crowley, gun in hand, when suddenly the owner of the club, Jake Rubin, who is by no means a squeaky clean guy either, uh, he was in a back room playing cards, and apparently one of the waitresses jumped in there and said, hey, Garner's out here with a gun. He's going to kill somebody. Ruben's a big guy. He's like, not in my club, jumps out there, approaches Garner, and then he rushes towards him. Now, here's where the stories kind of divulge into two different things. Some witnesses say that Ruben and Garner struggled for control of the gun. Some people say there was no struggle at all. Some say that Crowley shoved Reuben towards Garner from behind when Reuben was approaching Garner. Regardless of who pushed who or what happened or what kind of fight there was with a gun, at the end of it all, Reuben lay dying on the nightclub with a bullet in his head. Crowley allegedly prevented anyone from approaching Reuben attempting to help. Crowley allegedly grabbed the phone away from multiple people attempting to call for help, then proceeded to disable the phone by pulling it from the cord out of the wall. So Crowley and Garner you know, flee the area. Uh, Garner's picked up is at home. Crowley's picked up driving the wrong way on a one-way street. Uh, Garner and Crowley stood trial in November, but not before, and this is interesting, Chris, not before more than 200 jurors had been called and excused. So you need eight people at this time for a jury. Oh, okay. They went through huh. 200 people to find Jeez. that eight people. Reason being, it seemed that there was an anonymous caller who had been reaching out to the jury pool, heavily swaying their opinion on the case, shall we say. Uh, the clerk of the area said he'd been working there 46 years and never saw anything like this in his life. So hmm. it seems that friends of, of either... Crowley or Garner are doing what they can to dissuade anyone from finding a guilty verdict. You might be on the juror. So eventually they'd find eight people out of 200 that would be approved and selected to be on the jury. So Garner was found guilty of voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to eight years in prison. What do you think Crowley was found guilty of? 
Um, I, like accessory to murder? Nope. He was acquitted. Mm. Walked. Nothing. Wow. Nothing. So he walks. He gets out of Cairo. No, no sweat. So that was 1960. We're going to jump ahead a couple of years to 1963. Ted was arrested after he was involved with a fight at the Trinidad Tavern. No witnesses or evidence was able to find or were able to, to come forward to implicate Crowley. So charges were dismissed. You can't Trinidad and Quincy. Yes, this is back in Quincy. Okay. Yeah, Crow- okay. Crowley worked a lot outside of Quincy, but it was always back here at the end of the day. It seems like when he wasn't, you know, in, okay. in arrested for you know crime. <laughs> so. So later in 1963, there was actually a huge blow was dealt to Crowley, and it got him where it hurt. It got him in the prostitution business. See, the Gem City, the Gem Hotel, rather, uh, which he owned and operated, it was ordered to close due to multiple safety violations on the upper floors, which hadn't been complying with fire and health regulations by the innkeeper's oh, laws. It's not clean. Yeah, it's it's rough, right? <laughs> Uh, oh boy! Just let's just process that for just a second. You know <laughs> they were closed down because of because of health issues. I'm guessing. <laughs> let's let's let, think about let's that. Let's also think. Well, let's let's look at this from a couple different perspectives, though. Everybody knew what Crowley was doing. This is the worst kept mm-hmm. secret in Quincy. Right. You know, in the late '60s and '70s, you know, I think Quincy was legitimately trying to clean up its business. People sure. wanted to run successful successful businesses downtown. And the presence of people like Crowley really hurt. In the, in the system, I mean, you hear yeah. about these people talking about how bad it was with, you know, prostitution and brothels, I mean, even into the mid-50s and 60s. Well, you'll see it's much later in a minute. But yeah, so so basically, I don't know if it was a loophole. They finally got a jab in at Crowley by going it from a safety and health, situ- you know, safety and health situation. Uh, at any mm-hmm. rate, Crowley must have found a compromise, and in 1964, Crowley received a permit to demolish the upper two floors of the Gem Hotel building and was able to continue to operate the tavern on the main floor. So they took off the top two floors. He got his tavern. He still got his tavern. But, Chris, how are you going to run a prostitution business if you ain't got no rooms? Tents? I don't know. Well, you get resourceful. (laughs) You get resourceful. So what likely happened is he set up a network with other people who had establishments downtown mm. and sure. was utilizing other hotels. A lot of the transactions leading up to the, shall we say, encounters were probably being arranged there at the Gem Hotel. And then uh, the two parties were meeting at a designated location after the fact. On March 3rd, 1967, Crowley's second wife, Maxine, died at uh, 41 years old. I'm not exactly sure how she died. It seems that she was admitted to the hospital just a couple days before it happened. Sounds like it might have been kind of sudden, unexpected. Couldn't find any details in the obituary. What was interesting, though, is her body was actually donated uh, to medical science, which you don't see that a lot in an obituary. So it was kind of interesting to me. On March 3rd, 1967, that's when his second wife dies. Ted wasn't a bachelor for long, Chris. Seven months later... He marries again, this time to his third wife, Ruth, often called Jackie, and they get married in Las Vegas. I mean, that's that's a baller move, right? You know, mm-hmm. Ruth helped run the Gem Tavern, or it was also called the Gem Cocktail Lounge, along with Crowley. And although not in the newspaper history, it's another one of the most worst kept secrets in Quincy. But she was Ruth herself was a madam who had a very successful business. 
at uh, right over there on uh, 315 North 3rd Street. And you will mm. remember this. There used to be, until several years ago, a building that was directly south of where Grandma rocks on the roof. Yeah. It was a two-story structure. I believe it had a green roof, green shutters on it. Well, Grandma rocks on the roof at Phillips Furniture, but Ruth and her girls rock on the, in, the, in the house right next to it, shall we say. <laughs> it was a well-known and very popular brothel. I don't know if it had an exact name, but uh, she was a very successful madam. You know, she brought in a lot of girls. Ted ends up living there. She has a role in uh, the running of the Gem Tavern. So it's, uh, you know, this this structure was recently demolished. There's some images of it when it still existed. A lot of people correctly indicated that at that time it was almost absurd for one house to have multiple air conditioners in every upstairs window. Hmm. Well, there's a reason for that. They were they were getting some sweat and sweaty workouts in, shall we say, up there. <laughs> also, I have it on a good authority that uh, there was actually sinks outside the doors of all of the rooms for a little cleanup after the after the situations <laughs> took place. So yeah, it was uh, that was kind of the uh, the pimp well, the pimp finds the madam and they they got a pretty good one two punch there, right? That building there too is right next to what right next to Vermont, which Vermont was well known that for all the whole block. Yeah, is I mean that was as red as red light districts get in Quincy. Someday, someday that will be a wild Quincy episode talking Absolutely. about Vermont. Absolutely, <laughs> a lot to be said. I mean, you're right there where yeah. there was a lot of industrial places uh, just across the street there on Vermont, and uh, mm. absolutely a lot happened there. So yeah. Ted and Ruth, they seem to have a happy life. In 1972, however, Ted's only son, Carl, dies in El Paso, Texas. I don't have a lot of information on Carl. Well, not a lot about him. A lot of people I hear online who mention him just have great recollections on what a good guy he was. I think he might have died in an auto accident, um, but I, I can't say that for sure. So that's got to be a blow. I don't know how, how much relationship Ted had with Carl. Uh, you know, I, I just don't know what I don't know, really. So... On June 1st, 1976, a couple years later, Crowley was uh, was actually charged with keeping houses of prostitution. This is 1976, Chris. Wow, 76. 1976. Crowley and one other, who we'll probably talk about another, another time, was charged with keeping houses of prostitution stemming from investigations done by the Illinois Bureau of Investigations and the Quincy Police Department. The Gem, Gem Lounge, Gem Tavern, Gem Cocktail Lounge, whatever name you want to call it, which Crowley owned, uh, as well as the Poodle Lounge, another establishment in another hotel. It was the New Virginia Hotel on uh, 534 North 2nd Street. Uh, Crowley pleaded guilty to the prostitution charges. He was fined $1,000. But the biggest blow here was that he lost his liquor license. It was revoked at the tavern. And that, That's not good. that was really, uh, you know, this prevented Crowley from operating any kind of liquor license uh, from the establishment at that address from having any kind of liquor license for a year. I think he was given a few months to sell off any inventory he had, but that really seemed to be the nail in the coffin as far as ending his run at prostitution here in Quincy. They kind of got him where it hurt. And I think... I think a year later, the place was sold off to another establishment in Quincy. You know, Ted, Ted's kind of winding down here, but he kind of went out with a bang. Well, a little bit later, he goes out with two bangs, technically. But in 1978, you know, pretty serious news here. Crowley was subpoenaed to testify before the House Assassination Committee in Washington, D.C. 
Crowley was unsure exactly why they wanted to talk to him, but it was expected that it had to do with the relationship between him and James Earl Ray, the accused assassin of Martin Luther King Jr. Crowley, in an interview with local papers, said he indeed knew Ray from his time in Quincy, but Crowley thought that the investigation was just a complete wasteful you know, spending of government money, basically. Uh, in the actual deposition, he admitted knowing Ray as a customer of the Gem Cocktail Lounge or Gem Tavern, but didn't see Ray after Ray escapes from the Missouri State Penitentiary in 1967. See, he, he had knocked over a lot of uh, places in Missouri from a robbery standpoint, was in the Missouri State Penitentiary, and I think he escaped uh, by sneaking into a bread truck and was on the lamb, on the run, all the way. Boy, that, there's an interesting stretch there. We'll probably talk about James Earl Ray, but he, mm. he was down in Mexico for a while. The dude got a nose job. He was out in California. <laughs> Very interesting. At any rate, he wouldn't really be seen again by the law until he was arrested for the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, I believe. So interesting little brush with the law there with a pretty major milestone talking to our own little Ted Crowley in Quincy, Illinois. Ted didn't have a huge role in the uh, in the whole uh, investigation. It's interesting, sure. though, because Ray's testimony says he was indeed here after he escaped from Missouri Penitentiary, but didn't let Crowley know that he had escaped because he didn't want to have hmm. you know any kind of accessory. Yeah, you don't have a charge. connection. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. but Crowley denied seeing him at all. So who knows? You know why are you why are you being so coy here, Ted? Um, yeah. Who knows? Mystery, mystery. January 12th, 1982, Ted's name is in the paper again, but this time it's for a completely different reason. Ted's wife, Ruth, or Jackie, as she was often called, placed an ad in the classifieds. It seemed that their 10-year-old small white poodle, Queenie, had either been stolen or gone missing, presumably while being let out for a bathroom trip. Now, this is where things get rich, Chris. I mean, this they still lived in the old brothel at this point. Um, right over there at uh, 315 North 3rd. So they let the dog out to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it describes Queenie as she was as she left the house. And this is, I love this. Queenie was wearing a red and green bow on its head, <laughs> red rhinestone collar, and red nail polish. Oh my. <laughs> the ad alluded to a generous offer upon the safe return. Now, Queenie, of course, was an older 10-year-old poodle and needed specific medication and was on a strict medical diet. So I don't know what happened to Queenie. It's a tragic tale, honestly. Ruth had a history of, of loving poodles. Uh, even after Ted's death, she would often wander, not wander, but walk around Washington Square with poodles. She was the nicest old lady. No one in their right mind would ever have any idea what kind of past she had in Quincy. Uh, which is the sweetest old lady, probably fed the squirrels, was one of Quincy's most prominent madams. It's it's strange. You, don't, you never know what to make of somebody walking down That's the street. That's right. That's true. So at any rate, a few months later, I don't know if this whole incident with Queenie was in the back of his mind or not, but in January of 1982, um, months before we came into the picture, Chris, in 1982, <laughs> Crowley had his final run in with the law. I said he went out with a bang. Well, there was two bangs involved. We'll get to that in a second. He was sitting at the Parkview Cafe, which is located at 512 Hampshire. Now it's uh, where Crazy Cakes is downtown. Hmm. And Crowley crossed paths in the restaurant with another man and his wife. And the two men got into an argument that spilled over to the parking lot. Crowley proceeded to produce a pistol and shot the man in both knees. 
then gave the gun to the man's wife to hide it for him. <laughs> Authorities at the time would not release the topic of the argument. Crowley was arrested and charged with the armed violence. Um, the victim's wife was arrested for obstructing justice. The case went to court in March. Crowley pled, it, uh, pled innocence during the court case. It was said that the argument that actually led to this was that Crowley got faster service than the other two. And, oh, and if you believe that, you obviously haven't been paying attention to anything I've been saying tonight. Because the real story that I heard, and I won't reveal my source, but they would know. Former guests, shall we say. Apparently, and this is, I might be getting some of the details wrong, but the reality of the situation seems to be pretty close to this. The wife of the man, at one point, was one of Ted's prostitutes. Ted decided to greet this woman by giving her a little goose on the behind. Well, hmm. husband wasn't super happy with this. Uh, some people say he dumped popcorn on Ted's head. I guess popcorn oh, is like no. an appetizer situation. And I don't care if Ted's 76 years old, which I think he was at this time. You don't disrespect Ted Crowley and get away with it. Ooh, no. Ted allegedly gets done, walks out to the parking lot, and uh, this guy's kind of trailing him, giving him, giving him some crap. Ted walks, calmly walks to his car, reaches into his glove box, pulls out a gun, comes back, shoots the guy in one kneecap, has some kind of comment for him, shoots him in the other kneecap, Jeez. Gives his gun to the wife. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, at first he was brought on charges of, of a felony. I mean, this guy shot two guys downtown in the parking lot right next to Crazy Cakes, where it yeah. is today. And uh, it was a hung jury. Can you imagine that? A hung jury. Even a 76-year-old, <laughs> they, uh, they wouldn't convict Ted. He ended up having the, the, the hung jury, so the charges were lessened into five counts of illegal weapons possession. So he, he wow. paid, ended up paying $5,000 in total. Ted was 82 on May 27th of 1989 when he passed away after what a lot of the newspapers reported was a lengthy illness. So Ted was a member of the Twin Oaks Republican Club, the, or, the Loyal Order of the Moose, the Moose Lodge, I guess you could say, the VFW, mm -hmm. the American Legion, the Rocky Point Club, Northside Boat Club, and many other social wow. clubs in the area. Uh, he's buried in Greenmount Cemetery between his second and third wife. His, uh, his son is actually behind him in the plot. And though Ted had died, his name and memory would continue to live on in the newspaper thanks to his dedicated wife, Ruth. And I've at, right now I've run across ten of these, and they're clippings that she would post in the in memoriam section, the classified section, oh, okay. yeah, yeah, dedicated to his memory. And I mean, you read these, and God, it was, it was so clear that regardless of what kind of guy Ted was in life, I mean, she loved him. And you know, I'm just going to read one real quick here, and it says, "In loving memory of Ted Crowley, who died eight years ago today, a tribute to a special man." Occasionally, along life's way, you meet someone you'll always remember. Maybe it's his strength or his humor, the twinkle in his eye, or the gentle way he shows he cares. But whatever it is, he becomes very, very special. Maybe he's a helping hand when you need it, or a comforting shoulder to lean on, the confidant who helps you put things in the right perspective. Maybe he's a source of encouragement, support, or advice. But whatever it is, he is someone you want to be around, someone who makes life richer and more meaningful. He is an important person in your life, whom to value and appreciate always. To your grave I often wander, and picture your face so clear in silence. I stand on sorrow, missing the one I love so dear. Always loved, sadly missed, by wife, Ruth Crowley. 
There were two Ted's, it feels like, Chris. The yep. more mysterious version of Ted that went out of town to do the majority of his work. And the one who chose to make Quincy his home. He was affable, respected in the community, regardless of his ties to prostitution. And let's be honest, to say that Ted Crowley was the only reason prostitution and other vices were an <laughs> issue in Quincy would be completely untrue, a complete lie. Right. There's so much going on. Quincy's moral compass has always needed a little fine-tuning. Even today, there are parts of the country that would gasp and be taken back by hearing about our sometimes rowdy church picnics, often advertised <laughs> on the signs sharing beer logos. I mean, part of the Bible Belt would struggle to know how to process a pre-game ritual of a Quincy Blue Devils basketball game, where it would be some kind of a, a sure you get a devil wielding a flaming pitchfork and what might be construed as some kind of satanic ritual. So we're, we're wired a little differently here in Quincy, I guess. And, you know, I love it. I mean, yeah. what a great story. So... Right. Crowley was a complex character in a complicated time, and though hushed whispers about his activities with organized crime embroiled the community both then and even now, the reality that that most people had of Ted was much simpler. Um, Those who recall Ted recall a gentleman. I remember hearing at one point there was a woman in her uh, a woman and a man who were at the Gems Tavern. Maybe they had a kid with them. I don't know, but who knows with Quincy? And there was two guys getting drunk at the end of the table and into the bar and we're getting pretty rowdy and Ted went over had a had a little conversation with him and they uh, took off real quick he did the right thing when he didn't have to which is weird because it'd be nice to sit here and say you know Ted Crowley was a mobster of Quincy Ted Crowley was a, an assassin Ted Crowley was a trained killer i mean in 1971 he held a a, a cont- uh, the whole i think it was uh, it was actually, there was a thing called Buck Cancer with a Buck, and this was a situation where they were raising money for cancer research. A lot of the bars would set up a situation in pool tables, and if whoever lost in a game of pool would donate a dollar uh, on oh, the buck cool. board. And the Jim Tavern you know, was recognized in the newspaper for raising the most money. I mean, he was honored as a lifetime member of the Northside Boat Club. He was an active boater. I mean, this doesn't necessarily fit into that you know bad side of ted crowley there was a good side i think and if you really if you really add up everything that has to do with ted crowley from what he did what he was accused of versus what he actually was you know penalized for it goes a little bit like this and it's an interesting list passing counterfeit money no penalty connection with gun robbery acquitted no penalty assaulting a tax driver $5 $5 fine. Connection with robbery of slot machines. Acquittal. No penalty. Blackmailing. Extortion. Serves six months. Safe cracking. He had an alibi. No penalty. No charge. Auto theft ring. Found guilty. Sentenced one to ten years. Got out to join the military after three. Connected to a bar robbery. Not charged. Demon hurdle robbery. Acquitted of all charges. No penalty. Assault on a Quincy man. Fined 100 bucks. Accessory to Cairo murder. Acquitted. No penalty. Involvement in a bar fight. Charges dropped by the victim. Charges of running prostitution. Fined $1,000. Losing liquor license. Shooting guy in kneecaps. <laughs> Felony <laughs> charges. Dropped after a hung jury. Charged $5,000. Would a guy who was heavily involved with the mob only spend three years and six months total in prison? I don't know, Chris. Maybe. 
Uh, can I you know, let me let me answer that question with what I think is the answer, and that is uh, if you can pay off the right people and and threaten the right people, it's pretty easy not to do uh, jail time. <laughs> I 100 percent agree with you. Uh, here's what it, if you have the right connections. Here's I mean it's to to just say that a guy served three months and you know, three years and six months today would not raise an eyebrow. Like okay, people have right. a rough patch in life, right? Um, but to be in how many things that I list off there, Chris, is being in, in some kind of connection with it. That's some serious implications. That spans across the country. Um, I think he definitely, if he wasn't a mobster, he was definitely a criminal. Let me just throw this in a different light real quick. I was, I've been writing down each one of your, your little timeline items here. I was like, I gotta do some quick math. That's 51 years of activity going on and how does a guy that has 51 years of activity only spend a little over a year in in prison <laughs> three three years six months yeah okay total was three years yeah. six months yeah. but out of that 51 years of activity right he spent three years in jail that like i you said it and i agree that means you have some people watching your not your sixes right yeah. you have somebody watching your back you have powerful friends powerful allies keeping you on the street I also want to point out, and you did uh, your research, and this is amazing. Uh, I don't think this has probably been done by anybody before. This is probably the first time anything like this has been done. But, you know, obviously you got a lot of your information from the newspapers, but the stuff that we don't know about is not going to be in the newspapers. Exactly. Exactly. Who knows how much more activity there is? You know, I've come across my first experience with him was with a book. There's a few books out there. One's not so good, but we won't go into that right now. But, you know, there's talks about, you know, uh, what they call concrete shoes. Uh, there's talks about being through people thrown in the river. Um, there, there's a lot of talk, even with Ted Crowley in that situation where we, they're not going to report that stuff. If a person goes missing in that 50 year span, they're not going to know that Ted had anything to do with it. You're absolutely right. We only know what we know because these are where he got somewhat caught. Yeah. Yeah, well, there's a lot of stories, and we're going to go into some of those stories in the Patreon episode, Chris. So there, oh, I mean, we're talking that. complete caution to the wind. This, there are no facts to back any of this up. This is all hearsay, but it's very interesting nonetheless. And uh, you're going to want to jump over to the Patreon side if you want to hear a little bit more about this topic. The last thing I will I'll say here is just that, you know, we and you brought this up in both of these guys that now we've talked about in this mobster, if we can use that word, I know it's probably not the right word to use, but the, these mobster guys of Crowley and even Moncton, you, you know, we talk about these guys and that they did have this other side to them. And it seems like there was this other side where they were giving and there's people that are like, oh, you know, they were great guys to be around and all this stuff. And I was like, yeah, but they're going to be that way because, again, going back to what i said earlier you don't blank where you eat absolutely so you're going right. to be good to the people that you you have to live with on a consistent basis but you know you're also going to be doing some other things on the outside so you want to keep the guys that are around you happy but you know also doing some other stuff as well man good job on research this has been exciting it sounds like we are have a bunch more coming up on patreon right yeah there'll be some good discussion we kind of we kind of kept it pretty straight and narrow on the path of what we the documented history we're going to get into the more rough and tumble stuff of hearsay and stories in uh, the Patreon side, Chris. So we can talk more about what we think about. We'll process all this. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to process. There is. But uh, well, again, great job on the research. But this has uh, been a look at the uh, the guy that is simply known as Ted Crowley. We'll have more after this on Wild Quincy. <laughs>
We care about life right from the beginning at Blessing Hospital. For over a century, children have been one of our top priorities. We've always provided the latest technology and the most skilled healthcare professionals to deliver our promise of the very finest educational, rehabilitative, and preventive services for our children and the families who love them. Blessing Hospital. Family-centered health is with you all the way. Well, not, not an exciting throwback ad uh, to get you started here, but uh, one that has some significance because Blessing Hospital has been around forever, Travis. Absolutely. A staple in the community. So let me give you a little details. The reason why I pulled this up, this is like a 1998 KHQA TV ad uh, that you just heard, but uh, I had some interesting stats, interesting information. Harold Wig back in the day did an article I, uh, that was pretty pretty interesting, so I grabbed some stats. This was back in 2015. In 2015, with the 140th anniversary of Blessing Hospital. Oh, wow. Founded in 1825. So uh, we're coming up uh, be what, two years away from the 150th anniversary. The sesquicentennial celebrations on the verge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, their first health crisis was a cholera epidemic that happened. That happened before the city was even incorporated in 1840 the first doctor was by the name of thomas baker he actually came to town in 1824 didn't stay very long but by 1849 there were 50 doctors in the area okay 50 wow for a while there, they kind of shut the doors when there was uh, the Civil War was going on. There was no actual hospital, but as we've told in our previous episode, there was actually five. Many Civil War hospitals, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's five Civil War hospitals. Uh, and then they got kind of uh, a little side story that I thought was kind of interesting because we had, at one time, two hospitals here in town. That's right. Uh, it says here, uh, those years after the uh, Civil War... Quincy saw tremendous growth, and those that could afford doctors were cared for at home. Those who could not uh, were sent to the city poorhouse or infirmary. Uh, but a father by the name of, uh, I must say, Father Schaefermeyer of St. Boniface was uh, not satisfied with what was the care with the in- infirmaries. So he was the one that actually established St. Mary's Hospital okay. in 1867. So in 1867, St. Mary's was there, and then just uh, a little bit later, uh, Blessing got going again. And now, uh, uh, kind of give you a little bit of a quick little side story. In this news article, it says that the archives at Blessing Hospital has ledgers going back to October of 1875. Wow. You see, I would not never thought about the hospital being a source of historical information. It seems like it's definitely the case. That's incredible. From October of 75 to April of 1876, it contained uh, the ledger contains notes for 144 visits. So, wow. uh, it's like kind of a cool little story. You don't really think about that stuff, right? I mean, we 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 know about uh, these uh, blessing, of course, St. Mary's back in the day, but you don't really know the story about them. So, it's kind of neat to to learn a little bit about it. Yeah, great little tidbit there. Throw this out real quick is that if you do know of any old school radio or TV ads, heck, even if you are a um, a business and you have old ads from the day that maybe have as a cool jingle or even just something in general, send them to us at wildquincy at gmail.com. Surely you have some old VHS tapes of when you record yeah. a movie on like prime time at seven o'clock, the Disney yeah. show on Sundays. Yeah, if you get some old local video, uh, some local commercials, let us know. We'd be happy. Happy to dive into those and get some for it. You know, for the show. We used to back in the day. We used to go to church on Saturday nights, right? right? And that right. was at seven o'clock. Simpsons was on WGEM at six 
30 or 6 30 o'clock was it 6 30 i think so i would set the vcr to automatically record so i have eight hours worth of 1995 (laughs) simpsons episodes that i've gone through already and pulled all the ads off of that i could but um you know stuff like that yeah Yeah. if you have that even i'll even give it this guys is that if you have one that i can grab and i can borrow from you i'll I'll grab it. We can connect up. I will digitalize whatever you want for it as long as I can take the ads out of it. There, so there you go. So That's free, a deal. Right free, there. free digital enhancement of your VHS tapes if they had ads on it. I will throw out there that there's a chance that if we can't get more throwback ads that we may have to to, to abandon the throwback ads because it's getting so hard to find them now after, after four seasons. Um, so we could definitely use your guys' help. Uh, for for that if you can absolutely and and another thing we'd love for you guys to have wild files we've talked about this for a while we want your stories we want your ghost stories we want some weird local history in your family we want weird things you moved in and there's a weird box in the basement or in the attic it's got something creepy or something inside i don't care if it's weird wild wonderful hopefully it may be local if not that's okay We want to hear about it in an email or a text or a phone call. What we're doing here is we're trying to get a lot of stories to help supplement the off-season between Wild Quincy episodes or seasons. Because we work real hard to get a season out, and then we need a little downtime because we've researched our poor little brain silly. And we need some uh, content that will help us keep shows coming your way um, in the off-season. So if you guys have a minute to let us know, that'll help ensure that more Wild Quincy makes it to your ears on the off season, so we appreciate. We that. need you absolutely. It's like that. It's like that. Like that. Uh, Uncle poster Sam. Back in Uncle the, Sam. Yeah. yeah. We need you, Uncle so, Travis and Uncle uh, yeah. Chris. We're calling for you guys. Let's do this thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So help us out with both of those wild files or some throwback ads. We would greatly appreciate it. And uh, not so much of a throwback, but uh, maybe it's time to bring in the golden pipes. Always. And now it's time for words of wisdom from Adams County. All right, Travis. Since we are obviously talking about of course, he was never accused of it, uh, but we are kind of talking about the possibility of murder and stuff like that. Decided to dig into the folklore uh, and find out about what people are thinking about murderers and death in our folklore book, our wit and wisdom from the forefathers and foremothers. This so ought to be good. Yeah. Yeah. I got a few to choose from here. All right. Uh, we'll start out with uh, this one. 10,174. Dropping an umbrella on the floor signifies a murder in that house. It, uh, <laughs> it has happened or it will happen? No, it signifies that a murder has happened in the house. Oh, God. Hold on to those umbrellas, yeah. people. Yeah. Uh, 10,279. A murderer always revisits the scene of the crime. Okay. Ooh, that is very, that's I can, very. That is the first one that I've been like, I can get behind that. I, I think I can too. Yeah. Uh, maybe you won't be able to on the next one. 10,280. A murderer can never sleep with his face to the east. The sun will bother his conscience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, 10,650. If you talk about murder every day for six months, you will soon be hanged for murder. Chris, if that was true, with the true crime culture where it's at, 
<laughs> everyone would be s- flinging in the wind from a tree limb right now. Get ready, prisons. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, this one I thought was so funny because you brought it up. I think it was the Cairo. There, one of the guys was in was playing cards, yes, right? Yes. Okay. 8,931. It is unlucky to play cards near a place where there has been a murder. That dude was in trouble. Just throw the cards down and go home, right? Yeah, it killed him. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and then you know what happened? Somebody dropped a goddamn umbrella. <laughs> All right. Then the last one. Uh, this one's just weird, but I'll put it as the last one. Nine hundred, or excuse me, nine thousand one hundred thirty-seven. If a man carries a gun all the time, he will kill someone soon. The gun hoodoo him. Words of wisdom from Adams County. Wait, what? <laughs> is it like as in voodoo hoodoo? Yeah. Or is like is the, two words the, put together hoodoo? Who? It's one word hoodoo. H u d like a voodoo. Yeah, okay. I think that's their, their term for voodoo. How do you spell the, hoodoo? The, I don't know how to spell hoodoo. H o o d o o. Yeah. You know, the gun will hoodoo him. So that means that I'm a guessing that I'm a guessing uh, that it's what's happening a, is a that spell on him. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Holding that gun, he's got to use it eventually. He's got so, that trigger finger go. getting itchy. Man, I love Adams County. Gosh, there's the the wit and wisdom, man. It's just amazing. Mm, the more you know, it was really hard. Uh, I found some next week's episode, uh, which we'll get to in a second. I found some for next week's, and that was hard. Uh, to find but uh, we'll we'll talk about that in just a minute we do have to finish things up with the question of the day I know you've been pondering this one Travis I think you're gonna get this one I, feel I don't know confident. I don't have confidence but we'll see well let's let's recap what uh, of course we're playing the what's out of place uh, thing again and this one is name the event that did not happen in the 1890s was it Booker T Washington visiting Quincy was it the third largest flood to ever occur in Quincy's history the old Madison School was built on Main Street, or Quincy College, which is now Quincy University, had their first baseball game. Travis, you're pondering. What do you think? At first, I wasn't really sure, but now I wonder. I don't think Booker T. Washington was around until much later, so I'm going to say Booker okay. T. Washington visiting Quincy. That, Chris. That's, that's what you're going with? Yeah. You would be incorrect. What year was it? 1895, Booker T. Washington visited Quincy. Oh, my gosh. I was thinking he was like in the 20s or 30s. My no. Gosh. Yeah. All right. Like, don't ask me more about it because I just saw the headline and just went with it. <laughs> so uh, Quincy College, now Quincy University, had their first baseball game. That was in 1895. The old Madison School on Main Street was built on 1890. However, the third largest flood to ever occur in the city of Quincy was not in the 1890s. So that was the correct answer. Okay. No, I was way off on Booker T. Yeah. Ah, yeah. Okay. You're, I see you're scouring the internet already looking for this information. Yeah, so. 1856 to 1915, Booker T. Washington. Yeah. He fit. There you go. Mm. Yep. So there you go. So that is, uh, of course, we're not talking about Booker T. Washington or Madison School or Ghost or, of course, baseball. We're talking about something else that happened in the 1890s, and we've been uh, talking about this, uh, prophesying this episode for a while. And I, uh, Travis, I guess we're ready to to dig deep into this one, huh? I'll be completely honest; I don't remember what the next episode is, Chris. Airships, of course, I remember the yeah. next episode. It's airships. <laughs> Thankfully, I have read this book a while back, so I won't be completely cramming. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Unlike me, who is about 25% through like a 500-page book. Chris, what do uh, you do? What do you do when you look up into a night sky before airplanes and see something hovering above you? You freak out and go into the basement. That's, that's what I would that's do. That's what happened in the Quincy as well as much of the West in that time yeah. span. Quincy was part of a much larger epidemic. Did it cross the bounds of yellow journalism? Was it pre-flight? Could it change the history of flight? We'll see. We're going to dive into the topic next episode. Yeah, it'll be an interesting episode. We're both coming out this from two different aspects. He uh, read a few books. I've read uh, one. I'm trying to read one book. Uh, so we'll, it, it's hard. It's hard for me to read. Um, not really. Uh, that would be really bad. I, I'm not going to go down that pathway. It's like you know, no, being no, a researcher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It'd be kind of hard. Well, you know, granted, <laughs> I'm it takes a researcher well. that can't read. <laughs> oh, geez. All right. Sorry. <laughs> this, that's getting down a dark path. Uh, anyway, wow, yeah, Quincy. We'll be talk- we can read. <laughs> <laughs> new slogan new slogan we can read I always like i always like those slogans that say uh there's one in on on down in central illinois that's like if you were here you would be home i'm like really wow. <laughs> anyway it's like anywhere you go there you are right no yeah. oh, well. anyway we'll be talking about the 1896 uh, airship incident that happened across the united states and, and impacted quincy like travis said coming up in the next episode before we wrap things up for this one travis are we missing anything you know i just want to say uh thanks for listening tell a friend about wild quincy you know we're we're uh looking for some new patreons we got uh we got a fun party going over there and you're missing out on the fun so jump on over and say hello yeah absolutely check us out on patreon and uh way to check us out for the next episode coming up in two weeks but for travis hoffman i'm chris ketters you've been listening to wild quincy we'll catch you guys next time take care everybody Wild Quincy is released every other Tuesday and is produced by Chris Ketters and Travis Hoffman. Sound designed by Downdraft Sound and Editing and music by Travis Hoffman Music. I'm Bo Beecraft, and thanks for listening to Wild Quincy. Wild Quincy.